Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. What's the what's the scariest sound you can think of? Or I guess what I'm just trying to think of. I've been watching a lot of horror movies mm, lately. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of screams in horror. Sure. Let's go with that. So when when you hear a scream or like what do you think of or what do you feel or do you have any memorable uh, screaming moments? Screaming moments. So I haven't done it in a long time, so I can't promise that it's still really great. And I can't do it right now because I'm actually in the office. But I have a really amazing scary scream. How do I know? How do you yeah, okay. what's your well, so I need data, Vicky. Oh shoot. Okay. Well you can call my mom, but also Okay. <laughs> so um, Done. I like have just always anyway, so one Halloween when I was in high school, I guess, early high okay. school, um, my dad like picked me up from wherever I was and we spent the rest of the night just driving around town and whenever we would see like a group of like teenagers like cool teenagers on the street I would just like scream bloody murder um as we drove by like not like screaming anything particular just like screaming like I was being stabbed and it was so fun you're the Vicky who screamed wolf it was so so fun it was actually I feel like it was my dad's idea to do this Because I had a good scream. It was really scary and startling and like just oh like Oh my gosh. Yeah. I I have no idea how I'm ever gonna be able to hear this, but I, I shall someday. I'll like um, if I'm ever home alone, I'll like voice note you. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is this is exactly what this is everything I've ever wanted. Thank you so much, Vicky. <laughs> Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Well, okay. So we're we're talking about loud noises, in this case, mostly screams, because it is a few days before Halloween. And so uh, producer, first-time producer, which is always very exciting, Andrew Saintsing is here to tell us about a researcher who is investigating how our brains process screams. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Shane. Okay, so what do you have for us, Andrew? Well, I thought it would be fun to celebrate Halloween with a podcast full of screams. So I reached out to a neuroscientist who's been mapping out the way signals from these types of sounds travel through the brain. So is he trying to figure out how screams activate our fight or flight response to get us out of or through dangerous situations? Well, it's funny. I thought our conversation would focus a lot more on fear than it actually did. It turns out the emotional response that screams create in us really stems from our empathy for other people. Our brains are hardwired to recognize screams as distress signals. So in a lot of cases, we end up running towards them rather than away from them. But I'll let our expert, Luke Arnell, explain. That's, that's an almost pleasant take on a pretty unpleasant sound, but I am, uh, I'm interested. So let's get into it. Hi, I'm uh, Luke Arnell. I'm a neuroscientist um, in Paris. I'm working at the Institut de l'Audition, so the Hearing Institute at Institut Pasteur, which is a French uh, institute uh, for research. I'm working on uh, how the brain perceives, processes sounds from, you know, vocalizations to complex music. And um, we are interested in understanding how these sounds trigger emotions and specific behaviors. 
And it turns out, right, that you actually have um, spent a decent number of years looking into how screams um, affect the brain. Could you tell me a bit about how you became interested in screams? So it all started when uh, actually I had a baby uh, and I found out that uh, there is not much you can do against the screams, especially baby screams. And I thought it's uh, it's actually a really interesting thing because you don't have to learn how to scream. This is the first thing you can do. You do actually this, the first vocalization you do when you uh, give birth, when you when you are born, uh, is actually to scream. Uh, and this is also uh, a sign of good health, of good pulmonary pulmonary uh, health. So and and this is something you don't have to learn. It's extremely important to be able to scream for a baby. It's a vital uh, sort of a, a communication. If you if you can't scream, then you multiply your chances to not get help, and then uh, it will be difficult to survive. So screaming is really a vital vocalization, and I think for that it's it's a very peculiar uh, vocalization as a biological object. It's a super interesting uh, object, and it, and people had not studied scream so much, in particular from a brain perspective. So this is why I got interested in it when you know when I was hearing my my uh, little baby screaming in the middle of the night and there there was nothing I could do but, you know, running to her and, and trying to take care of her. And that's the only way uh, to get help. That's their best way to get help. And they actually use um, very strange sounds um, that we don't find very often in nature. It seems to be a sort of a niche, an acoustic niche that is preserved for these uh, alarm sounds um, that they use to grab our attention and to force us to take care of them. So what does that mean? Can you tell me more about that? So when you hear a scream, it sounds a little rough. Uh, it sounds like there are some texture in it. And uh, that was our, my, my intuition when I heard uh, these, these sounds. So they are not only loud, they, are also, they, also, have, uh, they also use a specific acoustic feature that's called roughness. The roughness is actually very fast uh, modulations of the intensity of the sound. So the intensity changes really fast. Uh, between 30 hertz and 150 hertz. So if you want to, to compare, when I speak, the, the intensity of the sound changes every uh, five times per second, so at five hertz. So that's the rhythm, the syllabic rhythm when I speak. But in screams, it's, it changes much, much faster. It gives the impression of something that bombards or, or something that's extremely fast, some, 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 like, something like a strobe light in the auditory domain. Uh, so it gives you a sound like... <laughs> And we actually compared uh, the intensity of this uh, roughness uh, in screams and in neutral, neutral voices. And we found that screams were actually using this, uh, this uh, feature much, much more. And then we started to play around with, uh, with roughness and we um, tested how it changed the behavior. So we asked participants to rate how much the scream was unpleasant, for instance, on a, on a scale from one to five. And we found that the screams that, the, that were the rougher were uh, uh, rated as the worst. Um, so, so roughness was really predictive of how aversive the sound is. So this specific parameter was predictive of uh, aversion. And then we also asked, we did an experiment where we were presenting screams on the left or, or, or the right of the, 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 on the left or, or on the left or the right uh, ear of the participants and we asked them to detect whether it was on the left or the right. And we found that if the sound was containing roughness in it, the participants were much faster uh, at detecting whether it was on the left or the right. So, so roughness also 
accelerates the behavior. So that's very convenient, especially for babies, because if they use roughness, then they can accelerate their parents' reactions. So that's what they want, right? They want to grab our attention, but they also want us to react as fast as possible. So it's really a trick, a super interesting trick that they use, and they tend to overuse it. <laughs> but, uh, but we don't habituate to that. So it's unbearable, and you can't get used to it. So that, that's a very interesting thing, because in general, in neuroscience, when you play a sound once, the second time you play it, you have reduced responses in the brain. The brain habituates, right? It's not the case for screams. So they are immune to habituation, which is, again, a very interesting trick uh, to, for, for the purpose of alarming and uh, getting uh, attention and care. And so it kind of is an alarm signal for the baby to get you to do something for them. But screams tend to, like you, were, you mentioned, the aversive reaction to screams and like um, somebody might run from a scream, right? So I guess I'm wondering how that, how... Yeah, um, how we deal with the fact that screams could both signal us that we need to get away versus we need to go help someone. The most important parameter to react to a sound is the intensity. If a sound, if a sound is really loud, then you would have, you know, you would have a very fast reaction. You would have startled reactions that we have very low reflexes that allow us to react extremely fast to loud sounds, for instance. But then, so intensity is interesting. But it, it, it informs and, and it informs you about the distance to the source of the sound. So that's a useful parameter. But you could have something that is intense and that's uh, far away. So it's it's a little under specified. It's a little not not really uh, precise enough. Roughness really tells you whether it's the, the uh, whether the, the the speaker the emitter is really in pain, for instance, or these kind of things. And so, so it's a much more informative uh, kind of stimulus, which says, I want to be silent. But then you have to make a decision. What's interesting with, with roughness, and we're going to talk about the brain circuits afterwards, um, what's interesting with roughness is that it's, it is silent. And they actually reach, they actually target a, a network in the brain that's called the silence network that has to do, that has to do with arousal, attention, and also uh, with uh, sleep, right? So... What, what these, these sounds do is that they, they want to arouse you. They want to wake you up, right? That's, that's the goal. And then you will make the right decision depending on the context. How do you look at brain circuits? I'm just interested to know um, what your approach to researching the brain is. So we use different methods uh, of neuroimaging. So we have different kinds of uh, approaches. The first approach that we have used was, um, uh, the, the, the first method was fMRI, so functional MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. Um, and, and that method allows you to see how much neurons uh, consume uh, energy in different parts of the brain. So basically you have a map of the brain and you see which parts of the, of the brain uh, uh, consume energy, depending on the stimulus. When we use that with uh, screams, we found that of course, the auditory system, the, the classical auditory system was uh, actively, actually activated by the, the screams, but not only the, the, the auditory system, we also found subcortical regions that belong to the limbic system, which is the system that deals with emotions. So that was with fMRI, and it was a way to localize the populations, the neuronal populations that respond to screams. But it was just part of the story, and, and then 
um, because fMRI is a relatively slow technique to measure uh, brain activity. We turn to another technique, which is actually which actually uses electrodes um, to directly measure the electric activity. You know, the neurons are talking to each other using electric activity. So <clears throat> this is the electroencephalographic uh, measurements method. But usually electroencephalography, EEG, uh, is measured from the surface of the brain. So that's not great because we cannot know exactly where it is in the brain. We can only see the electrical activity at the top of the, of the, of the scalp. So we actually decided to do experiments with uh, patients at the hospital uh, who uh, are in a very peculiar situation. So these are epileptic patients who have pharmacoresistant uh, epilepsy. And so with them, uh, the treatments, the ph pharmaceutical treatment doesn't work and they have to have a surgery of the brain to potentially remove uh, a part, the part of the brain that triggers, that, that triggers the epilepsy, the epileptic activity. And they spend two weeks uh, in the hospital uh, in observation with electrodes inside their brain to sort of look at where the, epilep the epileptic activity uh, exactly comes from. And so we can, during that period, we can actually, you know, uh, do experiments with them if they are willing to do it with us. And this is great because we have access directly uh, to the brain responses inside the brain. So thanks to this method, we have recorded uh, brain responses to uh, sounds that look like screams, sort of synthetic screams, uh, with, uh, I think, probably 12 patients who were patients enough to, to, to endure these sounds, but it was not playing too loud. We were playing it not too loud. Um, and so we played these sounds that are click trains that sound more or less like screams, and we wanted to look at this roughness parameter and compare it to pitch. And we found that whereas pitch was encoded in the classical auditory region, so the auditory cortex, let's say, what we found is that roughness triggered a synchronization of populations of neurons all over the brain in a lot of different regions. And it was really spectacular because what these sounds trigger is a sustained response, so a response that doesn't, so the, usually a response goes up and down uh, when you play a sound, regardless of the duration of the sound. In the case of rough sounds, of screams, for instance, or synthetic screams, you play the sound and then the brain response, the brain response is up during the duration of the sound. So it, it means that these sounds, they really bombard the system in a way that triggers synchronization, sustained synchronization of these populations in the brain, these neuronal populations. And this means that during a scream, there's not much you can do. You cannot process anything else, right? Because it's bombarding the system, you cannot process something else. You cannot do something else. So if you're like cooking and your baby screams, you're, you're going to have to stop cooking at some point because it really drives responses that are so strong that there's nothing you can, nothing else you can do than you know, go and take care of this uh, sound uh, to make it uh, uh, stop. So what I'm hearing is that screaming can be a really effective strategy if somebody is doing something you don't want them to be doing. Yeah, but does it just work on people? Would it be a good way to get like my dog to stop eating something that I don't want them to be eating? It seems like it would work just as well on a dog as it would on a person. It turns out screaming evolved long before humans did. It happens that almost every animal, at least mammals but, and even beyond, uh, use roughness as an alarm signal. 
And that's really an interesting idea because they are not, so in, in our vocalizations, usually we tend to exploit different niches, right? So we don't want to use the same niches as whales, for instance, or it depends, of course, on the size of the vocal tract, but it depends also on how you exploit your, uh, your ecosystem, right? Uh, and we don't want to use exactly the same sounds, otherwise there will be interference, interference between animals. But in that case, it seems that we all use the same to alarm, to warn. It, it seems that we all use the same feature, that's roughness. The salience network, I'm so interested in that. Um, has that been known? Or like, has? so you were saying it's kind of, a lot of the details of it are like being worked out still. So like, how recently is this um, system been like kind of identified and studied? It's actually a complicated system because in my view, it starts uh, in a region that has been identified in the 50s and the 60s, but it's really diffuse, a diffuse system as compared to more recent sort of uh, systems like the auditory system. So this system seems to be more diffuse, less clear when we look into the brain, and they are not like clear, very clear um, nuclei to, to look for. And it's also diffuse in a way that it goes almost everywhere. Uh, and, and so it's, uh, there's not much I can say about it because it's, 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 it seems very complicated. But what, what, what we see though is that we observe responses, responses to these sounds, uh, in regions such as the amygdala, the hippocampus, the insula, regions that are, that belong to the limbic system, that deals with emotion, that deals with, you know, uh, urgent reactions. And I think that's what's important here. But then there are lots of things that we need to, to, to look at now. Um, so the research is not easy because it's really deep in the brain. And, you know, with fMRI, um, it's, it's slightly easier to look at what happens at the, on, the, on the cortex, so more on the surface. Uh, but what's, what's really inside and really deep uh, can be hardly accessible. It's not accessible using electroencephalographic signals unless you use these intracranial electrodes. But, you know, the deeper you go, the more dangerous it is for the patients as well, very often, because there are like really vital nuclei in there uh, that, that are extremely hard to, uh, to, to record. And uh, it becomes, it can become dangerous because it's hardly accessible. So it remains, uh, there are lots of mysteries uh, in there. And I think this is why uh, this research is so fascinating. For sure. And I guess another reason to collaborate with people who don't study humans, maybe it would be easier to access deeper parts of the brain. Absolutely. Well, another way to do to, to look into this stuff is uh, that uh, so one of the hypotheses that so this system plays a role in the sleep-wake uh, cycles. So what I thought is that if this system passes by these nuclei that, um, that, that these, these regions of the brain which uh, decide whether you sleep or you wake up, then the brain should respond differently to roughness than to other sounds, and so. Just because it's fun, we have done an experience, an experiment with uh, 12 participants where this, they were spending the whole night in the, in the lab. And so we were recording their brain activity while playing these screams at a very low level. And what we found is that we found more or less the, the same effect is that, uh, the, the encoding of roughness is preserved during sleep. So if you play rough sounds, if you play screams, you will have 
uh, more reliable responses than if you play just uh, neutral localization. And I think this speaks to the idea that these sounds should be more salient. Uh, and as they, they, they are more salient, they trigger, uh, they tend to wake the brain uh, more easily just by triggering responses in these specific networks. But this is, again, very hypothetical because during these experiments, we were just recording uh, scalp uh, act activity from the scalp using electrode, you know, not inside the brain at the time. Uh, but these are hints that, you know, if it, if it interacts with uh, systems that regulate sleep, then it's a good sign that it goes through the systems that I was talking about, the, the, the kind of systems that, you know, uh, control arousal and wakefulness. Thinking about sleep makes me think about alarm wake up or like, you know, alarm signals to wake you up. So are a lot of uh, sounds that we have made in our environment, you know, like fire alarms, things like that, are they taking advantage of this roughness? Yes, absolutely. So so that's something I was, uh, I, I, we, we did test as well, was that when... I was hearing, you know, fire, fire alarms. I had the impression that it was, there was roughness in it. And so we tested, we compared, uh, we matched alarm sounds with instrument sounds, uh, which were more like, like pure. And, uh, we looked at again this roughness and we found that indeed alarm sounds exploit this roughness attributes. And again, it makes sense because it grabs attention, right? But what's interesting is that I've not found any Notice of that in, in, uh, any mention of that, uh, in the literature on alarm signals before we started to look into that. Um, and it seems that sound engineer were using roughness. They were adding roughness without really knowing, you know, that it was useful. So, so it was purely like uh, intuitive from on, on their part that they should use, they should be using roughness to warn people. And a lot of the buzzers, so the buzzer, the, the buzzers of the alarm clocks, uh, the, the fire alarms, et cetera, they are all like super rough. And it's interesting that it matches the features that we use when we want to warn people uh, using our voices. Okay, so that's interesting and all, but I thought this was a Halloween episode. Yeah, I so, all right, so what does this all mean for horror movies? Well, Luke says horror movies often take advantage of our brain's response to screams for jump scares, but really keeping us on the edge of our seats requires a little more craft. If you want to scare someone, you can use these attributes and play really loud sound uh, and use roughness if you want, and that would be, you know, startling, let's say. But what people use in movies is tension. So uh, instead of just playing it randomly at the moment, you don't expect it, they make you expect it, right? So they introduce this expectation. This expectation creates some sort of an anxiety about what's going to come, right? And you can figure that uh, something bad's going to happen. And when it comes, you're actually really surprised anyways. So the idea is to play on, on the prediction first and then on the surprise. And then you can maximize the reactions of people. But if you just play it without expectations, then there is no tension before, and I think it's less uh, scary. So the fear is really about expectations, right? Have you looked at, or has anyone looked at, you know, the idea of get the same scream sound, um, you know, when you're in that space of, like, you're alone and it's dark and you're scared versus 
it's just kind of you're out and about and someone screams and like is i mean i guess it would still be startling though if you're like out in the middle of the city and someone screams so like what's what um yeah is there have you looked scientifically at that or has anyone i don't really know so i told you that there is no habituation to screams but in a way um context the context is going to change the way you uh, process screams and you know sometimes we like to play with our emotions we like to play uh, we like to listen music that's that can be rough such as like metal or that kind of music some people uh, appreciate that we also like to play with our fears when we go to the movie theater and you know for with horror movies uh, we like to hear roughness in stadiums everyone is screaming and still it's really you know it's arousing so it's not fearful you know it depends the the the, the the, the emotional outcome also depends on the the context in which it happens. So in stadium, you have expectations that you don't have expectations that people are screaming at you because they are not predators. I mean, not supposed to be predators in there. Yes, there are situations where we can scream and it's safe. But I can tell you that when we started doing the experiment and I, I was recording screams uh, in the lab at, an, at NYU at the time, People who were behind the doors uh, wanted to call the police uh, because they didn't have the context. And so they were, something really wrong is happening. But if you give them the context, then, then it was fine. It's, it's fine. Uh, so it changes. It really depends on the context in the end. It's true. But it's never like really pleasant to hear someone screaming, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in very specific situations, maybe. <laughs> Anyways. Did you listen to the Wilhelm scream? Well, yeah, I've discussed the, the Wilhelm scream like many times before because, you know, every year <laughs> I do have an interview <laughs> like before Halloween. So I have discussed that. The Wilhelm, uh, yeah, I don't know exactly about the story, uh, um, how they picked that scream and why they always use this one because it's kind of ridiculous <laughs> and, and makes me laugh every time I can hear it. I, I hear it in a, in a <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. It's not that rough also. Yeah, is that so? Is it is it not a good scream because it's kind of you think it doesn't have that roughness, or what's the or it maybe isn't as intense as it needs to be? I don't know. It seems like overplayed. Uh, it seems like fake to me, and uh, it's it's not super easy to make a, a, a scream that that sounds natural. So you really have to ask people to to scream as loud as possible to make it sound natural. Uh, otherwise, uh, if people are shy, then it sounds fake. So it's, uh, yeah. And I think this one, I don't know. It's not, it's not really well done. <laughs> is that because, um, I don't know if you think much about the production of the sound, but is that just because we don't really get that roughness in our voices until we reach our like max volume? I think it's both. So when you scream, when, when you don't scream loud, uh, you tend to over control what's going on. And then you can hear it. I mean, the, the, the control of vocal cords in that regime is not really perfect. So if you don't put, uh, it's, it's not like we, we're not expert at screaming, right? We're just screamers. We, we just, we can scream. If we do it really loud and we believe in it, then it's going to work. If you, if you try to control it, uh, it's very easy to, to, to feel that it's a fake one. I mean, it depends on the speaker. Some, some are better. Uh, you can train, you know, the, the people who are screaming in bands, 
they have very uh, advanced techniques and they can also scream as much as they want for, for, for a really long time. Usually the vocal cords would uh, end up, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit dangerous for the vocal cord to, to scream. You cannot scream too much, right? So you, and, and, but apparently with training, it's, it's okay. Uh, but you can lose your voice very easily. And that's an interesting thing because, you know, the, it's, it's a little bit about the, it reminds me of the, the, the boy who cried wolf. If you scream all the time, people won't believe in you. So it could be an adaptive situation, an adaptive um, situation that, that uh, we, we cannot scream all the time. Vicky, can you imagine if we were able to, well, I guess we are physically yeah, able, but if it was, if it was a, if it was acceptable to scream all the time, like what would this podcast <laughs> be like? <laughs> it would be much more like a grindcore pot podcast, I feel like, but I would love it. I would feel so much more calm. I feel like ultimately if we could just scream whenever we wanted. Well, so yeah, I will say sometimes I I am childless, but sometimes I look at kids who are just crying mm-hmm. so hard about something whose stakes are so small, and I wish that that was just more or at all socially acceptable. Yeah, like to just sit down on the floor and scream and cry, like that sounds wonderful in my cubicle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is the thing about us mostly working from home yeah. because dude, like, who knows? Maybe maybe I do that and just no one knows. I turn off the – I get off for this interview today and I'm just, just like I need a moment for me. I'm just imagining if somebody puts their microphone on mute and then you could just see that they're screaming. <laughs> That's actually why I built an audio studio in my basement. It wasn't for the podcast or for the musical instruments or any of that stuff. It's just so that no one will – No one can <laughs> hear you scream a, back to Halloween. This is in a weird direction. Okay, so before we go down this rabbit hole any further, let's just end it there. And so with that, that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much to Andrew for bringing us this story and to Luke for sharing his work with us. This episode was produced by Andrew with audio engineering from Colin Warren and artwork by Jay Steiner. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please rate and review us and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. All right, folks, this is a little different because I'm addressing you all directly in a stinger, uh, but I got Vicky to record her aforementioned scream. So I wanted to give you a warning of that before we just get into it. So fair warning, here it comes. <laughs>